0: Hey everyone, this is Phil Howard here and welcome to another thought-provoking business-producing episode here on Telecom Radio 1. Today, we're very fortunate. We've got Dave Baggett from Inky. And Dave, you know, just a little bit of backstory here because like, I always like to start with a story. With, we don't want people just listening to technology stuff all day, but tell me a little bit about yourself, where you came from. And I want the craziest story, the first thing that comes to mind, that's PG rated that comes from the past.
1: All right, well, I got some good ones. I'll try to keep them at least PG 13. Uh, So I've been in software since I was a little kid. I literally grew up in the disco era and my dad was an electrical engineer working for the government. And he bought this computer kit, like build your own computer from parts And not like put the video card in parts like this is soldering components onto the motherboard kind of parts. And so (laughs) he did this six-month project where he assembled this computer, you know, and I'm like seven years old and I helped him. He would say like, get this resistor with these colors out of the box and give it to me. And then he'd solder it in. And this thing was like a six-month project. And I was just amazed when he turned this thing on, it actually worked. I was like, this is amazing. I didn't think this thing would ever do anything. This is crazy. But uh, so, you know, we had a computer in 1977. And he likes to say that moment when he turned it on was the last time he ever touched that computer because basically I monopolized it. Uh, He actually built it for my mom because my mom's a freelance writer. And back then, the idea that you could make edits on the screen and not retype your whole manuscript was like super science fiction far out. So she Mm. used this thing to write her books. But back in the day, I mean, this is like CRT, no color, you know, 80 columns of text was a big deal. I think the machine had 64K of RAM. It had the same CPU as (laughs) Pac-Man. I mean, this is really old school. And so she would write her articles on there. And um, from the beginning, I sort of tried to learn to program, you know, reading Byte Magazine and stuff like that. There weren't really... Well, there was no Google or internet, so you couldn't look stuff up online. You kind of had these paper listings you'd have to type in and figure out how to make them work. So I would write software for her that would do things like double space the manuscript or put a header or footer on the, on the page. This is like super advanced for the time. And, and one thing that came up recently was we found in my parents' basement a box which had the original manuals that I had made for this software Which remember, she's the only person who ever bought it, right? I mean, so like she paid me ten (laughs) dollars for this software, but I made a manual. Like, here's your user manual, and if and if you have any trouble, contact support. And I put my phone number, which of course was her phone number because I lived at home because I was you know nine. (laughs) I've (laughs) been doing software at least pretending to do, pretending to do software sales since I was a little kid, and sort of just got really into doing game programming like a lot of kids at that time, you know, because you couldn't just go and buy a A game you know there were games but they were pretty primitive so you could you could kind of make your own games that were similar uh graphics and quality to the real ones so it wasn't like now where you have to have 500 guys to make a triple a game you could kind of make your own little games yourself so i did a lot of that and then ultimately went uh into computer science for real at the university of maryland graduated from there and went to the artificial intelligence lab at mit where i met these two guys andy and jason who had been doing games since like they met in Hebrew school in seventh grade and selling them. Mm. And so long story short, I left there, left MIT with the masters and went to become first employee at this company called Naughty Dog, which nobody had heard of. And now is kind of like the premier game studio in the world and was basically their first employee. And we worked on this game, which was at that time called Willie the Wombat, ultimately became Crash Bandicoot, which is kind of the, Sony PlayStation mascot game. And the funniest, at least PG story from from, uh, Naughty Dog is we moved out to LA because we had a deal with Universal Studios. Universal Studios, the the studio, um, really wanted to get into what they called at the time, interactive, which basically meant games. So they set up a division. They had a really impressive guy who had been an Atari named Skip Paul, set up this division called UIS or Universal Interactive Studios. And we were one of the first... Uh, developers they brought in and the way it works is you know the studio gives you a big pile of money in that case it was like a million dollars and you make the game and if you sell enough copies to earn back the million dollars then you start making a royalty so Mm. fortunately with crash it sold so much because sony picked it up as their game and published it we we made a lot of money on the royalties but one of the things is because it was universal studios they gave us space on the back lot so we were in steven spielberg's bungalow
0: nice literally
1: in spielberg's bungalow And in fact, one of the funny things was one of the first artists that Andy and Jason hired, Taylor Kurosaki, was working on the Dalek model for the US version of Doctor Who, which nobody even remembers now, but there was a time in like 1994, when the BBC and Universal were trying to bring Doctor Who to America. And so they had all this, you know, artwork and collateral done for this US version of Doctor Who, which never got made. And so... We met Taylor and hired him away from, from making Doctor Who Dalek models to work on our models for Crash. Um, but the funny thing is, that of course, on the back lot, you know, this is like the studio back lot, we're right on the theme park. So like literally, when our parents would come visit or whatever, we would just sneak onto the, sneak onto the E.T. ride and like go on all the rides for free. And they had these little trams that would take people around on tours and they would sort of you know, just make stuff up. Like basically, the, the, the owner of the company, Jason one of the two guys, the reason the company is called Naughty Dog is because he had a dog named Morgan. And he'd walk Morgan around. And the guys on the tram would say, do you recognize that dog? You should. That's the dog from, you know, and he'd make up some show. It's like a total lie. And all the people on the tram would go, oh, it's the famous dog from whatever, you know, Lassie Four. So so that was funny. And then the other thing that was, the other hilarious story about that is, so on the back lot, you don't have cars, right? Like you drive to work, and you park in the garage, but then to get around the back lot, you're pretty much taking golf carts. And so Jason and one of our, one of our other guys, Justin, who was assistant men, they were always trying to figure out how to make the golf cart go faster because it had a limiter where basically you could only go like 25 miles an hour. Yeah. Governor, exactly. I've got so a governor one story day, for another day. I don't know. So, <laughs> I was going to say, there's so a lot of governor stories out there. One of the two, Jason and Justin – this is a good one because one of the two of them figured out the governor only works if you're going forwards. You could go as fast as you want in reverse. <laughs> so basically, they would, ended up coming back from one of these, you know, golf cart runs where they had gone like 70 miles an hour down the hill and flipped the golf cart <laughs> <Hell laughs> really and killed themselves. <laughs> and they also lost one in the uh, parting of the Red Sea ride. They tried to drive the cart through there and it got flooded and <laughs> had to get a crane to
0: pull the cart out. <laughs> Oh
1: wow. Universal did not like us.
0: <laughs> so we've got to go from, so we've got to but go anyway, from that was this. Like... We've got to go from this to email. I mean, really, how do you go from that to email? You know,
1: it's weird. Like I've always been interested in hard technical problems. So did two of the games, you know, I was basically along with Andy, who's one of the other founders of Naughty Dog. The two of us wrote the, wrote all the code for the first game. And then we had two more, two more programmers that helped us in the second one. And so I worked on the first two games and then made a big shift out of games and worked on this other startup called ITA, which was kind of like Google of airfare. You know, we would compute the airfare prices for, you want to go from, you know, Boston to LA, here's the prices and here's a thousand options. And we wrote a whole system to do that. And, you know, the first, first customer for that was Orbits. So people remember Orbits and Kayak and those guys, they sort of used our search behind the scenes. And put a nice website on it. And then we also did a bunch of the airline websites. And so the transition from games to travel search seems totally bizarre if you don't know how programming works. But you know, in some ways, it kind of doesn't matter what the domain is, an interesting problem is an interesting problem. There are lots of really hard problems that we had to work on to make crash look as good as it did on that era of hardware. And then likewise, you know, making the travel search work. It was sort of when the idea of using a big a big pile of PCs and racks to do a computation instead of a giant mainframe that was like a new exciting idea. So Google was doing it. We were doing it. some some others were doing it. And so we had to solve a bunch of these challenges and people don't remember, but the hardware then was a lot slower and more primitive than what we have now. So it was a challenge to fit a difficult computation like, you know, rendering the world of crash on a PlayStation one or computing you know a billion airfare prices on a pc that fits in a rack
0: um, mm, i would imagine you know and to
1: get to email basically email is very similar in some ways to travel in that there's just a tremendous amount of accreted complexity in the industry i mean if you think about the airlines they're one of the first to adopt networking and computerization and databases right they were doing this stuff in the early 60s and one mm. of the challenges though is when you're an early adopter then 40 years later, you're stuck with a huge mess because people have just added on crap for 40 years, and it's never really been rationalized. So being an early adopter, you usually get penalized later. And indeed, the airlines had created this mountain of complexity. It's almost impossible. I mean, I remember reading a study by IATA, which is the International Air Transport Association. They're like the, the umbrella group for all the airlines in the world. They did a study. What would it cost to add a digit to flight numbers? So instead of having four-digit flight numbers, they wanted to have five-digit flight numbers because they were running out of flight numbers. They came back with an estimate of a billion dollars.
0: So they oh basically did an
1: 18-month study and assessed that the cost to add a single digit to flight numbers across all the systems would be a billion dollars. And that's why there's still only four flight, four flight digits, because they didn't do it. So, and you, know, you can imagine all this complexity around things that people know intuitively, like Saturday stay over, right? Or, you know, advance purchase, all that stuff's embodied in a bunch of rules that have accreted over time. And email is kind of similar, right? I mean, email dates back to 1971, believe it or not. Email's so old that in fact, the idea of HTML was a really, really recent feature added to email. Mm. Like email used to only be plain text and all the, the whole idea of having HTML and attachments and stuff, like all that was an, a grafted on bunch of stuff that happened in the eighties and nineties, especially the nineties. And so, you know, the idea that you can accrete all this complexity, then somebody has got to come along later and sort of unwind it all and rationalize it all. And what really struck me about email was twofold. Number one, it's kind of a mess from a usability standpoint So we put a lot of effort into making the search work better and things like that. But also from a security standpoint, I mean, the internet in 1971, there was no remote consideration of security. It wasn't even something that was on anybody's minds. And so the email system, it has various hallmarks of being developed in that time in that it's just completely and grossly insecure. An example is, if you have a connection to a mail server and you're allowed to send mail on that mail server, you can just put whatever you want in the from line. Pretty much. You can just say, I'm the president of the United States. I'm whitehouse.gov president of whitehouse.gov, send it. And, Hmm. and that's the way it's always been. And so things like we're working on now at Inky, protecting phishing, these are things that are just latent problems that have been around for a very long time because email is never designed to be secure. Right. And so we're retrofitting on top of it, security features. And there's all kinds of stuff like, you know, encryption's been retrofitted on and digital signatures and attachments and HTML. And so in in some ways, the crazy domain complexity is similar for email as it is for travel, travel search, even though they're totally different domains. Right. So
0: let's give our, just to pause for a second, let's give our, our general listeners our laymen, our lay folk, like ourselves. Okay. Like I'm the guy that would send that email with the president's name in the front line. I may have even done that. Um, yep. Yep. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I wanted to title this episode, the three dumbest things employees do with email that are worse than a Hillary Clinton Bez server. That was what I was going to title this. And I may still title this episode that, but for the <laughs> yeah, general exactly. lay folk, for the general lay folk, what, does inky do why should they have you
1: yeah so it's, it's a really good question um, there's so much crap and snake oil in the cybersecurity world now that I'm always really happy to answer that because I actually have a real answer unlike 99% of the vendors out there so if you look at phishing right it's basically two kinds of attacks and by the way phishing email-based phishing is like the most effective cyber attack there is right now it costs nothing it takes one sucker to fall for an email and you got them It's the perfect way to deliver malware it's the perfect way to perpetrate wire fraud and it's a perfect way to get you know identity theft like people's w-2s right so but what are these people doing now so what they basically do is number one they'll try to impersonate somebody in your company so they'll send a mail they'll change the from line and they'll say oh i'm actually you know your cfo and i'm going golfing and sometimes they'll even look at the social media profile of the person so they can say you know i'll be at the hamptons with sally and the kids so I won't be able to do this wire, so get the wire out today and don't bother me. So they make a very convincing looking message that's forged, impersonating someone inside the company, asking you to do something, and then because you don't wanna get in trouble with the CFO, you go do it, and it turns out, well, that actually money that got wired to an organized crime account, uh, and it's gone. So that's sort of case one. Uh, Very, very effective, that's called spear phishing. And case two is where you get an email that looks a lot like DocuSign, or a google mail and it says "Uh oh you better log in because you got to change your password or something so you go and then log in and it turns out you didn't just log in to docusign you logged into some attacker's site and guess what now the attacker knows your credentials and can log in as you to docusign right or your bank and so that's what we think of as brand impersonation so there's this case one is sort of impersonating an individual and case two is a brand impersonation and what we're doing at Inky is we have specific countermeasures to stop both of those cases. And in the first case, we basically can tell by analyzing the mail whether it really came from your mail server. And so if it, if it didn't come from your mail server and it says it's from somebody in your company, that's a red flag, right? So we put a big red, red warning up and say, hey, this is an attempt to impersonate somebody internally. And we can black hole the mail or however people want to do it from the, from the IT security standpoint. But the point is we can identify Which males are these impersonations? A brand impersonation, case two, is more interesting from a technical standpoint, because there what you're really trying to figure out is, what brand is this male trying to look like? And so if you get a real DocuSign male, then the program should say, it's trying to look like DocuSign, right? Because it is from DocuSign. So that's sort of question one, what brand is it trying to look like? And then question two is, okay, well it's trying to look like that brand is it from a valid mail server for that brand? And so we can use cryptography to answer the second question. The first question is harder though, cause we're trying to look at a mail with a program kind of like a person would. And what the attackers are now doing is they're making the visual cues essentially invisible. So in the same way that Facebook looks at an image and says, do you want to tag that your mom? Cause we think it's your mom. You know, they have machine learning models that do that. We have a similar kind of system that does that with imagery and HTML messages. And it can tell with, you know, 99 plus percent accuracy, gee, that sure looks like the brand imagery from DocuSign, you know, or Bank of America or whoever. Um, And so what's different about us is we're able to catch these really nasty new waves of attacks that you can scrutinize the mail very carefully and still miss the fact that it's a forgery. And so the program's able to look at the male like a human, but without getting tired, you know, without missing any tiny detail. And I can give you some examples of these subtle details. They're really, really clever on the part of the attackers. What's so really, the... we're the only ones doing this kind of machine learning based
0: stuff. So what's the worst thing that you've seen? I guess what's the worst thing that you've seen? What's the, and obviously that, that's what you help prevent, but what's, can you give me like a... Uh... I don't know a testimonial or some kind of story or maybe horror story that would you know potentially get someone fired.
1: Yeah, well, I, I have some examples of really eye-opening attacks that make people say, "Oh my god, they can do that." And then I've not, I know horror stories from the industry of you know there's been an incident where thirty million dollar wire went out that was fraudulent. The money was just lost. CFO was fired. You know, that's a pretty bad one. I mean, I like to say $30 million to buy a lot of software. <laughs> you just what about uh, buy the just a general one that you see? It ain't going to be $30 million to buy our software.
0: Yeah, but well, I mean, what's the um, typical? And then, you know, another
1: example that people talk about.
0: I mean, I just want like just one, yeah, go ahead. just give me one example of of the typical everyday. It doesn't need to be $30 million. It could be, you know, half a million dollars or even 100000 yeah, yeah. or even $20,000 would be, I think, a fireable offense.
1: Yeah, I mean, most commonly now we're seeing the attackers either go lower on the amounts. So we'll see lots of attempts to wire $1,000 and they'll make a random number like, oh, it's $1,532.18, right? So it looks believable. It's a small amount. It's below some threshold that requires extra checks. And sometimes we'll see that being a, a widespread attack. They'll do lots of those little ones or we'll see they'll do one of those little ones as a probe. So, I was just meeting with a customer the other day where they got a probe transaction that was something like a thousand dollars and then which they caught, and then they subsequently got one that was you know a million and a half dollars. so the attacker clearly was sort of probing with the small value and then and then trying to get the big whale amount um, secondarily. The other one we hear a lot about is w twos so there are guys out there who really want to get detailed information that they can use for identity theft. And so there are famous examples where somebody says, hey, I need the W-2s for all the employees. And then the recipient thinks it's really that person and sends them 18,000 W-2s, which then are now in some some database somewhere on the dark web. Um, I mean, this stuff's happening all the time. If you look at FBI stats on this, this is literally a billion dollars a year. This is costing U.S. companies in just the wire fraud alone. So, I mean, it's incredibly pervasive because it's easy and cheap. Mm. Right. And it's like easy to get it's easy to get caught up by one of these. You know, in terms of examples, my favorite example that I show people is uh there was an attacker who registered a domain that looks exactly like bankofamerica.com. except what they did was they replaced the M in America with RN, the letters R and N, which seems weird at first, but then if you look at that domain, Bank of Arnerica, In most fonts on most computers, the way the ligatures work, that R and N look exactly like an M. And so literally, I show this example mail, which is a perfect copy of a Bank of America mail, exactly the same HTML. You know, we catch it because we see the logo imagery. And I show this to somebody and say, what's wrong with this link? And even though they know something's wrong with the link, they still can't tell that the M has been replaced by R N. And that doesn't require some even more sophisticated stuff sometimes they'll replace one particular kind of e like a latin e in google.com they'll replace it with a cyrillic e the, you know the russian alphabet and usually those look really similar and hard to detect but you have to use funny domain names you know this bank of america example is kind of like you don't even have to use any weird letters you don't have to use funny unicode tricks you could just you know replace an m with an r and another one is a, replace d with cl in a lot of fonts, mm. C L next to each other looks a lot like a lowercase D. Mm. And so I show these to people and they're like, oh my God, this is like a whole new world for me. I realize now we're so doomed. And I'm like, well, <laughs> you're not, because actually we catch all that stuff. <laughs> right. So the good news is we catch it. The bad news is, yeah, these guys are getting really sophisticated.
0: So what's your role over at Inky? But just so people know. I'm the we'll founder
1: um, and I work a lot on, yeah, I work a lot on the sales. I mean, I've had a, a lot of influence on the technology. I'm not, I'm not a programmer on the project anymore. Um,
0: if someone wants this product. Founder and like chief sales guy. <laughs> okay. If someone wants this product, how, how do they get it? Is, it? is it only a 365 product or how, do they, how does it work? How, how can they get it?
1: Yeah, so I mean, you know, it's, it's very easy to, to sign up for this because we use this mechanism called add-ins, which Microsoft added a few years ago. So as long as you've got a relatively recent exchange, now that's certainly Office 365, but it also includes hosted exchange 2013 and so on. As long as you got one of those, it's super easy. You know, we'll charge you 350 a user a month for, for you know, each user and you basically add this little URL into the admin panel of exchange. And then the inky icon, which is a little octopus, um, shows up in everybody's outlook. And then when they have that thing open, it'll analyze their mail in real time and tell them, you know, either this looks good and here's information that we were able to verify about the sender. It's really DocuSign or whoever, or it'll say red flag, orange flag, pay really close attention to this. Mm. Or in some cases, it can be configured just to black, black hole the mail. If the mail is bad enough, then it can just never deliver it.
0: Now, and then is there like some sort so of – quor- is there like a quarantine? And up and... Is there like a quarantine or something like that? Yeah, or so like you, that? Can set it up to, you, you can set it up to
1: quarantine the mail or black hole it. Um, you know, we, we, we have all kinds of mechanisms that let the IT guys control the policy of how these mails that appear to be malicious uh, – whether or not they get delivered at all and then, you know, how much information we present to the user and all that stuff is then tracked in an analytics system. So then the security.
0: Sure, there's a portal, there's like some sort of portal or GUI, example, you know, there's like a portal or a GUI for exactly. an IT admin or say a partner. Now, obviously through CNSG, you know, if anyone wants to, if anyone wants to purchase this, they can certainly go to thehowardstrategy.com or they can email me, Phil at philhowardsales. Uh, certainly, all my agents can can resell it. Uh, any of the agency world can resell this product, and you can come to me, and we have a, a nice little special discount for you too. If you're listening to this episode, just use coupon code Telecom Radio One. What about uh, what about Google Docs? Um, anything there? Anything with uh, Google Docs, or do they have to have an exchange? Yeah, so
1: we have. A, yeah, we. Ha- it works with with Gmail also. So we have a version that works with uh, Gmail and and G Suite, and works as a Chrome extension. So you basically get you know, for, for your listeners, it's kind of hard to picture this. So I'll try to paint the picture visually. The way it works is you open up the Inky panel and it just is like a separate side panel right inside your outlook or Gmail. And then whenever you click on a mail, when it displays that mail, it also simultaneously displays Inky's analysis of the mail, which if there's nothing wrong with the mail, it'll just say, okay, we were able to verify this came from, you know, whoever sent it. But if it's suspicious or we know it's malicious, we'll put a big red warning up. So you see, you know, it's not like a typical security product where it kind of silently does whatever and you're left wondering as a user, what happened to my mail? In this case, generally the mail gets delivered and the user gets to see specific feedback on what we think is suspicious. Now, sometimes things can be wrong with mails that don't mean there's anything malicious. So links can be wrong. Um, You can often see where, mailing list mail will have a different reply to than the from and that's often a hallmark of malicious mails but it's very common in mailing list mail so it's not always the case that everything is black and white it's either malicious or not sometimes you can't tell and so we'll say well that's an orange flag just pay attention to this and if it's asking you to wire money or change your password you know maybe don't do that right confirm with somebody outside the email channel and so this same experience works in, in gmail too you get a little side panel it's like having a security guy sit next to you while you're reading your mail, saying, Yeah, I don't know if I click on that link. <laughs> it seems like, right. hmm, yeah. I'm, gotcha. I'm pretty sure that's not from DocuSign. <laughs> I, wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't log in. <laughs> uh,
0: a lot of other kind of larger enterprise companies that are still using things like Lotus Notes, believe it or not, is that something they should be doing? And does no. this have anything to do with you? <laughs>
1: okay no i don't have any dog in the fight i mean honestly i don't have a dog in the fight so i'm happy to sell people a version that works with either google docs or what they call g suite now or office 365 (laughs) i will say that to my to my mind looking at the market and talking to cios a lot because i do that as part of my job obviously i see a lot of momentum towards office 365 so i think if you're not you certainly should be moving to Office 365 or G Suite um, and most of your peers appear to me to be moving to Office 365. And what's nice about both of these ecosystems is, and Microsoft's a little farther along, frankly, than than Google is on this, the exact thing that we're using to add this capability, these add-ins, they're a general mechanism where vendors can create extensions that run right inside of Outlook or Gmail. And that's really cool because you're not then dependent purely on innovation from Microsoft alone or Google alone, they've opened it up to other third-party ISVs like us that can add, you know, point solutions that address particular needs. And so that's exactly why we focused on phishing. You know, Microsoft, of course, has various security offerings, like they have something called ATP, Advanced Threat Protection. None of those things really addresses this newer phishing problem. Pretty much the -the state-of-the-art prior to Inky is well, if I see a URL that's been reported, I'm gonna block the mail. But the problem is these newer mails, they either don't have URLs or they have a unique URL for each recipient. So there isn't a single URL to block. And we're just seeing that this kind of URL blacklisting approach is not gonna work anymore. And then on the other hand, you've got the training software guys. There's one called FishMe. There's, there's no before. And it's great to train people to spot the signs of forgery but the issue there is, you know, in BankOfAmerica.com, you can train people all you want. They can't see something that's invisible, right? There's no training that's going to make them see something that's invisible. And the attackers aren't stupid. So they know people are getting trained with the training software, and they're working around it now. So these add-in mechanisms let us do something very targeted. In our case, it's targeted to this next-generation phishing problem. But it also lets these other vendors... Like us do this and so that's why I think you want to be on either the office 365 ecosystem or the Google one I think that you're just going to miss out on these spot solutions if you can't get on one of those two platforms
0: well let's end with um, let's end with that la- that last point that you were getting into which is which is really your separation factor so you know why why inky versus any other fishing software which there's probably plenty of out there and you know all your competition but other than your days over at mit and driving golf carts or your friends driving golf carts backwards at speeds of 70 (laughs) miles per hour or higher um and working on crash bandicoot and, and being a gamer guy um what what why you know what really separates you versus the rest
1: Yeah, I mean, we're just unique, right? I mean, we're the only ones doing this kind of machine learning. You'll see machine learning related buzzwords in the other guy's marketing, but I haven't seen any evidence that anyone's actually doing analysis of imagery and text or domain names like we're doing. And that's really the key to catching this newer stuff. Uh, And we're constantly adding these things too. So we have about two dozen of these heuristic machine learning checks and we're adding more all the time. The add-in mechanism, by the way, lets us deploy things instantly. Like you don't even have to restart your Outlook to get our latest version, just shows up. So as we're adding stuff, it just gets deployed without even IT guys doing anything. And, you know, and the second thing is we're unique in that the way we present the information is different, right? So we're not a typical spam filter product or, or e- even the things that claim to look at phishing. They're kind of working without the user knowing what's going on. And so one of the things we get a lot of positive feedback on, in fact, it surprised me a little bit because I thought this was sort of a minor feature of our product. But it turns out it's the thing that people remark on the most, Uh, unsolicited. And that is, Hey, I like the fact that users can see what Inky thinks is wrong with the mail. So it's a training function and a protective function and the users in the loop, right? So the user is able to see, Hey, that particular link looks funny to me. Doesn't necessarily mean it's malicious, but you should pay attention to that. So Hmm. it's kind of implementing a bunch of these guidelines. You're trying to train people to follow, but you've got your little robot assistant doing it for you and then calling your attention to the stuff it finds. And I think, you know, as far as I know, we're the only solution that has either of those properties, either real deep use of machine learning. You know, we use neural network based deep learning and and some other approaches. Um, And we're, we're, as far as I know, the only vendor that has anything like an add in that actually interacts with the user. I think both of those things are, are really game changing and both of those things are, what you need to deal with this next wave of
0: phishing attacks we're seeing. Nice. So to review the top three dumbest things employees do with email that are worse than a Hillary Clinton bed server are number one, clicking on an email. You can't,
1: get... <laughs> <laughs> what? What? You can't Can really we... get worse than the, you can't really get worse than screwing up an election with your email habits, right? I mean, that's kind of going to be... The hundred-year story about email, um,
0: but no, really. What's you know, the top three essentially things that we covered? Like the top three things that we covered, though. What, like we, we went over them, right? It's like getting robbed by like by sending money, right? Because there's a like a link, right? That, what was the second one? The second one was like just just review the top three that you see.
1: Well d- yeah, yeah. So don't don't click on a link. I mean you should use something like Icky that tells you the links are already known to be problematic, but if you don't click on links without checking where they go. If you get a mail that says, Hey, you wire need to log money. in and change your password, or okay. you need yep. to wire money, or hey, send me all the W-2s. You know, okay, yeah, yeah, right. W twos. You don't rely on email for those things.
0: <laughs> okay, so don't click on a link. Don't you know, change your password and send money somewhere or DocuSign something and don't send all yeah, these W2s. Other, the, the, other,
1: the other scam that people fall for, which you do get some protection from some of the existing products like ATP is malware attachments. And the, and the game there is the person will pretend to be your CEO and say, you know, I want to have everyone's comments on this uh, financial projection spreadsheet by the end of the day. And then you open that attachment which isn't actually from your CEO. And now you've got malware installed on your network, right? Uh, So immediately opening an attachment on the basis of a mail that appears to be from the CEO. Now, if you're using Inky, it'll just tell you, Hey, that ain't your CEO red flag. Don't do anything with this. Right. But at the very least be in general, I think people need to understand the only way something bad is going to happen to you is if you take an action based on an email that's not undoable, like wiring money, or you open an attachment, Or you click a link and therefore log into a site and give them information. If you don't do any of those three things, email can't harm you. Like just having it on your screen, the pixels of the email are not going to hurt you, right? (laughs) You've got to interact with it to cause problems or you've got to take action for there to be a problem. So we're trying to make it really clear visibly, don't take action on this. This looks like a scam or we're not sure it's a scam, but hey, it's talking about changing your password. Do not do that on the basis of just an email alone.
0: Dave, I really appreciate the time today, man. If you had uh, any final message, which I think that was your final message, but if you've got anything else to say, uh, now's the time, man.
1: I would say, let us help you. The insurance policy you get from using a tool like Inky is costs you a heck of a lot less than a single bad incident. You know, it doesn't have to be $30 million of, you know, I like to joke, it's sort of a dark humor, right? But $30 million buy you a lot of software, right? We're not anywhere near... <laughs> 30 million dollars you do one wire fraud that nails your company for a thousand dollars you already paid for our software for years so the insurance policy is cheap and you should have it
0: good point dave thanks um and thank you everyone for listening if you would like more information or you would like to get pricing on inky's products then go to the howardstrategy.com or you can also email me at phil at philhowardsales.com everyone have a wonderful day